well, we all feel the pressure to conform to the crowd at different times, don't we? Perhaps you can identify different times in your life where you find yourself pressurized to just conform to the pattern of the crowd. Let me give you a couple of simple examples that you might have experienced in your everyday life. You ever heard a joke that you didn't really understand, but you laughed along anyway because you didn't want to be the only one who didn't understand the joke? Or have you ever saw a piece of clothing or a piece of fashion and you think to yourself, that looks horrible, yet as time elapsed and that piece of clothing became more mainstream and more people started to wear it, you kind of thought to yourself, hmm, maybe I do like that. Here's just two simple examples of ways in which we find ourselves pressurized to conform and ultimately do conform to the pattern of the crowd. And Daniel chapter 3 talks a lot about the pressure of the crowd and how we should respond as God's people in the midst of a world which tries to shape us into its mold. I'm sure you remember what's been going on in the book of Daniel so far. The people of Israel have been captured, they've been besieged, they've been taken into captivity in Babylon, who is the leading empire in the world at that time. And we were introduced to a guy called Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. And they had to go through a rigorous program in chapter 1 and then in chapter 2 King Nebuchadnezzar the king of Babylon had this really difficult dream which only Daniel through God's help was able to interpret for him and at the end of that chapter Daniel got promoted so you're not going to read of Daniel in chapter 3 he's promoted to one of the highest ranking elements of Babylon and also King Nebuchadnezzar bowed on his knees and confessed that Daniel's God was the true God and now as we get to chapter 3 I want you to see the three movements of this chapter firstly verse 1 to 7 Notice the pressure of the crowd. The pressure of the crowd. I wonder how you would expect this chapter to begin. In light of what we've just seen happen at the end of chapter 2, where King Nebuchadnezzar falls on his face and acknowledges that Daniel's God is the true God, what would you expect to happen right at the start of chapter 3? You might expect Daniel, or King Nebuchadnezzar rather, to lead the people of Babylon into mass revival. Now that he admitted that the God of the Bible is the true God, now he might enforce that everyone consider that the true God of the Bible is the one who should be worshipped alone. Yet that's not what we see at the start of chapter 3. Look at verse 1 with me of chapter 3. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Jura in the province of Babylon. What does King Nebuchadnezzar do? Straight after confessing with his lips that the God of the Bible was the true God? He sets up this idol, this golden image for people to worship. What on earth is King Nebuchadnezzar doing? It appears that his confession of faith at the end of chapter 2 was merely lip service. His life doesn't match the profession of his lips. He was willing to give God lip service at one point in time, but he wasn't willing to offer him undying allegiance. He wasn't willing to offer him life service. I wonder where in your life are you tempted to do the same thing? You offer God lip service. You know the Christian cliches. You know the right answers. You can turn on the theological or spiritual talk when you go to church. But are you not offering God just lip service? Are you offering him life service? Are you giving your entire allegiance to him in all that you do? Apparently for Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 3, that's not the case. He's merely offered God lip service at one point in time. And now he's brought in this massive image and he's going to enforce that everyone in Babylon bows down to worship this image. And so you can see, can't you, in verses 2 through to 5, he creates this little inaugurating ceremony. This ceremony where he's going to unveil the statue which he's going to demand that everyone worships. And can you imagine being Daniel's three friends? Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. They're in the crowd They worship God and God alone. They know they're going to be asked to worship this image. I'm sure they felt the pressure. 
I'm sure they felt squeezed. I'm sure their heat was rising. I'm sure their stomach started to churn in this environment as this, this gig statue was being unveiled. And notice how pressurizing this scene is. This scene is powerful. We're told that this image, this golden image, is 60 cubits high, verse 1. That's 90 foot tall. This is a powerful image. And so this scene of intimidation is it's powerful. But not only is it powerful, it really is intimidating. Notice the list of individuals who are present at this inaugurating ceremony. Look at verse 2. All the high-ranking members of Babylon were told that King Nebuchadnezzar gathered the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of all the provinces. Everyone who is important is at this ceremony to unveil this golden image for everyone to worship. It's a powerful scene. It's an intimidating scene. But it's also an influential scene. You'll notice as well, as you look at these first kind of six verses, all the instruments that were used in this inaugurating ceremony. And instruments and music has a real effect on our emotions and our affections, don't they? That's why if you've ever watched a rugby match, you see these big tough guys before the game lining up. They're ready to really beat each other up effectively. Yet as they stand shoulder to shoulder before the match begins with their national anthem playing, what do you find? So many of them move to tears. Big, tough guys, but that's the effect of music on our emotions and our affections. And so that's what these three guys, Daniel's three friends, will be facing in Daniel chapter 3. This environment where they're being pressurized to bow the knee, to compromise their allegiance to the true God of the Bible, and just to bow the knee to this image, this golden statue. And if you think things are difficult now, they're about to get a whole lot worse. Because look what happens in verse 6. Their worst fears are realized. Nebuchadnezzar says this, Whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. You see, we're not just being advised to bow down to this golden statue. No, they're being forced to bow down to this golden statue. And if you don't, I will chuck you in a fiery furnace. This is no empty threat from King Nebuchadnezzar. He was known to do things just as extreme as this. If you read the book of Jeremiah, you'll see some of the extreme measures that King Nebuchadnezzar went to for those who refused to obey his laws. And so in light of the severe threat to not bowing the knee, as these boys look around them and look at everyone else in Babylon, you can see in verse 7, everyone bows the knee. It says, as soon as the people heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image. Imagine being the boys looking around, seeing your colleagues bow the knee, seeing your friends bow the knee, maybe even seeing some of your family members bow the knee, seeing other people who you thought were fellow believers with you in the one true God of the Bible, they too bow the knee. Think of that pressure. But they say, we will not bow. And as you think about this picture, this, this image of just intimidation and fear surrounding this golden image and this idol, the author wants to remind you that from God's perspective, while this scene might be intimidating and powerful, for him, it's nothing. The author tries to peel back some of the layers for you so that you might see just how empty this idol really is. Looks impressive, looks great, but it's actually not all that impressive compared to God. And the author does that. He undermines this image by using the little phrase, set up. He uses it time and time again in these first seven verses to undermine just how powerful and significant this idol really is. It's ultimately a setup. Let me read some of these verses again for you. And keep in mind that little phrase, set up. Notice how it undermines the real power that this idol has. 
It says, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Jura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and all those guys to the image at the end of verse 2 that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Verse 3, then he gets all the individuals together again for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And you go on again, verse 4, and the herald proclaimed aloud this command. Verse 5, when you hear all these instruments, you're to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace. And then the end of verse 7, everyone fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Do you see that? How the author tries to show you, the reader, from God's perspective, while the scene is intimidating and powerful, it's ultimately a setup. That's true of all the idols in our lives. What idol are you prone to worship? Is it the allure of sexual temptation? The thought that popularity will satisfy me? The thought that money will make me content? When the layers are pulled back, it's a setup. It promises you everything but delivers you nothing. And so notice firstly the pressure of the crowd, but notice secondly the cost of obedience. While this is ultimately, from God's perspective, an idol which is weak and, and fragile and set up, from a human perspective we know, don't we, that, that this is a scary thought for these three friends. But in spite of the cost, verse 8 to 15, you'll see that these boys, they do not buy. In fact, they refuse to buy. And it leads to great anger from King Nebuchadnezzar. Look at verse 13. Then King Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, demanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. And so he brings them forward because he is furious. I wonder what you would do if you were in these boys' positions. You might be tempted to think, oh, it's not a big deal. Let's just buy. I mean, we're going to be stuck in a, in a flipping fiery furnace if we don't. Why don't we just buy it? No big deal. I mean, we don't really worship this idol in our hearts. Let's just buy the knee. We worship God. It's just, it's just a simple action. It's just doing that. that. That means nothing. Couldn't you justify buying in so many ways? Yet these boys say, we will not buy. These boys say, in this moment, to buy would be to give some sort of allegiance to an idol and we don't want to give any sort of allegiance to this idol and so we will not buy. They make no excuses. You know, what these boys show us is the importance of rejecting any single sinful expression no matter how trivial you can make it sound in your own mind. What these boys show us is the importance of undying allegiance to God in every single moment. And so they say, we will not buy. And how could you have that sort of allegiance? How could you have that sort of resolve not to bow to idols? Well, I think the answer that these boys give us is in verse 16 to 18. And it's this, a passionate desire for the glory of God. That's what it is. Look at verse 16 to 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. Do you see that? These boys said to King Nebuchadnezzar, you might throw us in the fire and God might protect us. But even if he doesn't protect us, we're still not going to bow to your idol. Do you see what these boys' motivation is as they give their allegiance to God? It's not that he's going to protect them. He, they acknowledge he might not. We might die. We might go through some very painful circumstances. But we're not motivated to serve God because he's going to help us later on down the road. We're motivated to serve God because our all-consuming passion is his glory. We want to glorify God right now. What happens to us physically? Irrelevant. 
We're willing to compromise our comfort. We're willing to sacrifice our ease of living. We might not even see tomorrow, but we don't want to glorify God right now. That's how you truly give your allegiance to God, to pursue his glory at any given moment. And so we see the pressure of the crowd. We see the cost of obedience. And thirdly and finally, notice the faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of God. In verses 19 to 23, we see that the king chucked them into this fiery furnace. He turned it up seven times hotter than it usually is. So much so that the very people who chuck these boys into the fiery furnace, they themselves die just because the flames are so hot. And I'm, no doubt you can imagine King Nebuchadnezzar walking back to his room, uh, feeling very satisfied about what he's just done, thinking, I've showed them boys who's really the king. But as he walks back to his room and he turns his back, he gets the shock of his life in verse 24 and 25. It says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods. In this astonishing moment, King Nebuchadnezzar looks into the fiery furnace, and he doesn't see three men, he sees four. Who's this fourth man? Is it an angel of God? Is it Jesus himself? Could be either. But what's important to know is that as these four men are walking in the midst of the fire, they are all entirely unharmed. It gets even more shocking in verse 26 and 27. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar came to the door of the burning fiery furnace, and he said, Come out here. And then they came out from the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had no power over the bodies of their men. The hair of their heads was not singed, the cloaks were not harmed, there was no smell of fire which had come upon them. Astonishing moment. These boys come out of the fire and they're entirely unharmed. I don't know if you've ever been to a bonfire, and no doubt you have. One thing you'll know is that when you leave a bonfire, your clothes stink of fire, don't they? Not just there, but probably for like a few days, you catch these little smells of, of fire, maybe on your bed or maybe on a part of your body or an item of clothing. It's pervasive. Yet these three men were in a fire at its hottest temperature, and there's not one piece of evidence that they were ever in a fire at all. Not even one hair in their head was singed. It's an astonishing moment, which yet again leads to another shocking confession by King Nebuchadnezzar in verse 28 to 30. Yet again, he confesses that their God is the one true God. Astonishing. And as you think about this chapter, think about the, the flow of the narrative. Think about what's happened so far. The people that God has created in his own image have rebelled against him. They've turned to idols. As a result of this, it's led to judgment, a fiery judgment. Yet God, through the means of sending one to walk with his people in the midst of the fiery judgment, spares them from the judgment, which leads to a confession of praise from his enemies. Doesn't that story remind you of another story? It should remind you of the greater story of the Bible. The story that human beings created in God's image and made to worship God have rebelled against him. We have turned to idols, haven't we? And as a result of that, we deserve to receive God's fiery judgment. Yet God has provided a means for us to avoid that fiery judgment by sending one to come with us, to walk with us through the judgment, and even better than that, to take the judgment on our behalf. One sent from God, Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus Christ himself. And through him coming and walking through the judgment on our behalf, it leads to God's enemies becoming his friends and confessing with their lips that he is the true God. Do you see how this story is a little snapshot, a little preview of God's ultimate bigger story, his story of redemption. 
And so as we live in this world, as people who ourselves were God's enemies, as people who ourselves have turned so many times to idols, God has sent one who has walked through the fire with us and for us so that we might be spared from his ultimate fiery judgment. He has been ultimately faithful to you. And so my question to you is this, as you reflect on that and as you look at the world around you and how it tries to squeeze you into its mould, will you offer this God your undying allegiance in ultimate response to his undying allegiance to you and his faithfulness to you in the good news of the gospel? I pray that you will.